The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to this bonus edition of The History of Literature. go. Hello, everyone. So this is a quick little bonus edition, a mini-sode, we can call it. Here's what's going on. Somehow, I messed up. Let's call this a redemption episode. I messed up, and I'm disappointed. This is an episode about mistakes and redemption and disappointment. So here's what happened. You were supposed to get an episode on Thursday, Monday and Thursday. That's the schedule. We even have themed Thursdays now. <laughs> Forgotten Women of Literature on Thursday. Instead, you got that episode on Tuesday. Monday, Tuesday. Fine. It's not like they spoil. It's not like they expire. You can wait until Thursday if you wish. But then, for people who listen to it on Tuesday, you'd have to wait six days for another installment of our humble little podcast. Six days during a quarantine? I did not want to do that to you, dear listeners. At the same time, I'm planning my October, our Thursday themes for October, and we're going to do Edgar Allan Poe, and there are just so many good stories to choose from. Way too many good ones to choose. Four Thursdays will not... Actually, we have five Thursdays in October, but that won't be enough either. So I'm going to give you this little oddity. This misfit of a story, one of his sensationalist stories, it's called Hop Frog. And we have some music to go with it. This is one of the most disappointing songs I have ever heard in my life. Hop Frog is Poe in his full deranged mode, his bizarro mode. It's about a court jester, a little person who's picked on and abused, and he lashes back, as you will hear. It's based on a real incident Maybe a 14th century incident in France. The Ball of the Wild Men, it's called. And sometimes it's called the Ball of the Burning Men. Here's what happened. Some wag convinced the king and five others to dress as wild men for a masquerade ball. Wild men were kind of a medieval type, like satyrs. They're wild men who supposedly lived in the forest creatures of the forest. This this whole historical story behind this story is incredible. It's about the French king, Charles VI, who became king at the age of 12. For the next 10 years or so, he grew steadily more insane as he became worried about threats against the monarchy. He believed he was made of glass. He took knights out into the field and attacked people who were not the enemy. He did all kinds of insane things. Today, the speculation is that he may have been suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, Back then, they thought it was sorcery. They brought in a respected physician, a man who was in his 90s, who examined the king and said, basically, he's crazy. Keep him away from power. Don't let him do any kingly duties. There's no cure for what he has. Minimize the damage. To entertain the king, his wife arranged for a ball, a masquerade ball, and the king and five noblemen were going to dress up as wild men, creatures of the forest, in their costumes. So they smeared themselves with pitch from trees and flax 
in their costume, which tragically was highly flammable. And they said, well, we better not allow torches into this party. But the king's brother didn't get the memo about the torches. He and a pal showed up bearing their torches so they could see. And these wild men were cavorting about, whooping and hollering and demanding that people try to guess who they were. So to get a better look, a torch was held up toward a face. Who are you behind that mask? Ha ha. But a spark jumped onto the costume and it spread among these wild men. Four of them were burned alive. The king's wife fainted, thinking that her husband was one of them. Luckily for the king, he wasn't right next to them. And his 15-year-old aunt was clear thinking. She threw her big cloak over the king to protect him in his flammable costume from the flames. It was a horrendous spectacle, horrifying. I won't repeat some of the descriptions. They are absolutely horrifying. And the whole incident led for a call led led to a call for the king to be replaced. The whole thing just seemed emblematic of a king who was horsing around, wasting money with extravagant parties, dressed up in a weird costume, leading to tragedy, someone who could not be counted on to rule. Enter Edgar Allan Poe, centuries later. It's a story designed to appeal to the 19th century American, our man, Edgar. Mr. Poe, he probably drew upon it when he was writing his sensationalist story, Hop Frog, which he published in 1849. It was one of his last stories. And he published it in a newspaper out of Boston called The Flag of Our Union. He didn't have a lot of respect for the newspaper as a literary publication, but it paid well. Poe turns the incident of the burning ball into a revenge story. As you will hear, echoes of Poe's own life run throughout the story. He himself had a lot of vengeful thoughts in him for the way he had been treated by different people and by life itself. And he had a a kind of madness that came over him when drinking. Even one drink was enough to set him off. He, He was upset with people when they forced him to drink. That's also present in the story. Even being presented to the king, kind of like him with his wealthy stepfather. And he had a thing for orangutans. Orangutans. I I pronounce it the way he spells it. Orang-utang, as he spells it. He had those in other stories as well. We're going to have plenty more on Poe in October, which is really a month that he owns in my mind anyway. He's kind of the greatest practitioner of a certain kind of short story and poem, a tale of horror, a tale of terror. And we have so many great stories to pick from. The Black Cat, The Telltale Heart, The Fall of the House of Usher, The Cask of Amontillado, The Pit and the Pendulum, William Wilson, The Imp of the Perverse, Lygia, The Mask of the Red Death, The Premature Burial, The Descent into the Maelstrom, and on and on which is not even to mention his detective stories, where he was a pioneer, not to mention his literary criticism, where he was a very astute, shrewd critic. Not to mention any of his poems, The Raven. My goodness. We'll get our fill of the classics in October. But this this one is odd. Maybe it's suitable for this mini-sode. 
about mistake. We can also talk about his fascinating life in October and his bizarre, mysterious death. It will be a good October. Now, I told you that this was about disappointment, too. In doing the research for this mini-episode, I learned that Lou Reed had an album called Raven with a song called Hop Frog, and David Bowie sings. So I thought, amazing, incredible. I can't wait to hear it. I can't wait to hear what those two princes of darkness, of pop darkness, had to say about this Edgar Allan Poe story. I bet they dive deep. Something mysterious, iconoclastic, eclectic, weird, dark. Vincent Price is kind of the celebrity master of this. It's hard to top him, but what would these two do to take me into the world of Hop Frog? And here we go. Here's what they did. Well, they call me a juicy hop frog. You can see me in any wood bog. Don't you know that they call me the hop frog? Hop, big frog. I'm a hop frog. A hop frog. They call me the hop frog. Hop mm. frog. That's it. Here are the lyrics. Well, they call me a juicy hop frog. You can see me in any wood bog. Don't you know that they call me the hop frog? Hop pink frog. I'm a hop frog. A hop frog. They call me the hop frog. Hop, hop frog. Do I have to keep going on? It just repeats. There's nothing else. That's it. And then at one point they say, you can see me in a ballroom. And I got kind of excited. Because it reminded me of the French king and that whole story. But that was it. You can see me in a ballroom. You can see me in a bedroom. You can see me in the woods. The hop, hop frog. They call me hop frog. They call you hop frog. Well, they call you hop frog. Hop frog. Hop frog. Frog. Nothing about a mad king, nothing about a horrible fire, a costume party gone wrong, nothing about the Edgar Allan Poe story. You can see me in a ballroom. That's as close as we get. You could tell that they don't know what to do with themselves because they they change it from they call me a hop frog to they call you hop frog like that means anything. We're trying to avoid the repetition. It's what pop songs do. The end. Aren't we all? They they use I, me, 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 and then we. This is, they call me Hop Frog. They call you Hop Frog. But they don't tell us anything about being a Hop Frog. And, I don't know why I'm whispering. It's because Stephen Bowie. My God. How could he have such a bad song? Woodbog, did they even read the story? No, they couldn't have. They just looked at the title. They had to know that Poe was not writing some children's book about a hopping frog. Did they have no respect for our man, Edgar? Eddie, as he called himself to his friends sometimes. Jingle Man, as Emerson called him, which cracks me up. When you read Poe's poetry, you'll see why he's called Jingle Man. But at least that relates to Poe. At least that gives him the dignity of reading his works. There's some valid criticism in there, but it comes from a place of taking him seriously. Some penetrating insight. They call me a hop frog. 
Oh, it's so disappointing. So, so disappointing. So let's redeem ourselves. Let's hear a few listener emails and then redeem ourselves with the actual Ed Grell and Poe story. Hop Frog, we'll do that after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Subject. Well, well, what do we have here? Dear Jack, I will begin by telling you that my pupils are different sizes. It has been this way for a long time. In my normal mood, my eyes are respectably normal looking, but if you were to stare longingly at them in the manner of a lover and move from one to the other rapidly as you move closer and closer, you will perceive about five millimeters of a difference. I think we can both agree that this is a gentlemanly, handsome difference. However, if I am in a state of happy agitation and you were to glance at me, you will think that my eyes were a new moon and a full moon. Yes, Jack, with each pump of adrenaline into my bloodstream, my pupils begin to diverge picometer by picometer until one eye shines of onyx and the other of aquamarine. All of your loyal listeners and I know that you are a hopeless romantic. As a man of the heart, you can guess that this peculiarity of mine makes it difficult to hide my true self when I am near someone I have powerful feelings for. The truth of my love is writ upon my glassy surfaces, and they need only to look upon my face to read my heart. To my horror, I caught the most recent person that I was secretly in love with searching the celestial bodies hanging on my head. Their eyes moved from my new moon to my full moon as quickly as if they were flipping through a calendar. The story of this affair I will save for another time. I suspect many people's eyes also do this, that a few of the sunglass wearers out there are hiding both a waning and waxing gibbous, 
that the bellows of their hearts pump their pupils big and small like croaking frogs. This is where you come in. I have discovered that your show agitates me nearly as happily as a rendezvous with a sweetheart. I I listen to your show when I work in the studio, and if I am making a self-portrait, I have to make those telltale pupil adjustments to be true to life. Well, well, what do we have here? Yes, I beam with the pleasures of the cycling heavens when I hear... Theme song pop on. Your friendly welcome. Elizabeth Bennett's knock on your door, and I settle in for a new hour that I get to hear my friend Jack speak about his favorite things. Your show is a window into the world of literature that I have looked through many times for inspiration, lessons, recommendations, historical context, and even friendship. Yes, friendship. It gives me happy agitation. I've been taking book recommendations from you and Mike for years. I'm looking at my bookcase now, and I see the names of authors that you two like populating my shelves. Their names look at me with judgment and with pleasure. Thank you for all of your work. Your friend, a painter living in Georgia, J. P.S. I can recommend some ideas for shows if you are still accepting them. I don't know how interested you are in accepting these anymore. By my count, you have already made 244 episodes. Actually, more than that, listeners. But I do think about art and literature frequently, and I have some lists for you to look at and consider while you are drinking a couple cups of coffee on me. One, author profiles I haven't heard you mention lately. Apologies if you feel like you have covered these people enough already. Southern writers, Carson McCullers, Eudora Welty, Alice Walker, Harry Cruz, James Dickey. Nobel winners, Yasunari Kawabata, Jose Saramago, J.M. Coetza, Gunter Grass. Famous authors, Robert Graves, Louis de Bernier, Richard Wright, E.M. Forster, Charles Portis, classics, Stendhal, who did him. Michelle de Montaigne, Luis de Gongora, Balzac, Hugo, Lawrence Stern. Should I list more? It can get tedious, but listing authors is so much fun. Two, unconventional ideas for shows. Kurosawa's adaptations of Shakespeare. The opposite of the one-hit wonders, the three masterpieces, a top ten ranking of authors who wrote three masterpieces of literature. Who has the best three works? Who has made three books that are ten out of ten? Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Morrison, Joyce, anyone? Do Shakespeare and Chekhov count? And who comes the closest to three Grand Slams in a row? Has anyone made four? Artists writings that have become literature. Letters of Van Gogh, Journal of Eugene Delacroix, My Life by Marc Chagall, etc. Are the letters of Vincent Van Gogh literature? I don't know myself. The historical novel, your thoughts on making historical figures into fictional characters. I'm thinking of books by Dumas, Robert Graves, Hilary Mantle, Gore Vidal, even Irving Stone. But I'm sure you can think of more. Does War and Peace qualify? Which works walk the line of fiction and biography and rise to the ranks of literature? That's probably enough for now. Maybe these are more, just just more questions I would ask you, not full Show ideas. I should read that sentence again. Maybe these are more just questions I would ask you, 
not full show ideas. Again, your friend, a humble painter living in Georgia. J. P. P. S. I have just listened to your newest episode on Faulkner. I have lived my entire life in the South, and as a result, I have always been inside the cruel ideology of the powerful. The casual brutality of the powerful does not change. But recent events in the South and across the nation give me hope that there is more kindness than cruelty, and the people are beginning to win. Back to Faulkner. I am convinced it is the role of the artist to reflect the world around them. Faulkner played the role of artist as a mirror. Well, he reflected cruelty. He did the duty. His reflections even revealed to himself his own flaws. So in this way, we can say that he embodies a region in turmoil with itself, and in this, we find his value. The failure of Faulkner fascinates me. It reminds me of Tolstoy's failure, all of which you talked of in your episode devoted to him. Faulkner was a huge fan of Tolstoy. Maybe he also saw these similarities. The full portrait of Tolstoy includes his works, his philosophy, his turmoil, and also his magnificent failure to live up to his own image of self-perfection. With these two writers, we see that the full portrait of an artist must contain the conflict they have with their own ideas. The failure is the essential element. It is by this failure that we have a reflected portrait of the artist in addition to their culture and our collective humanity. Maybe it is not enough to be a mirror. We must demand more from our artists. If success lies in the vision of a world of unfettered justice and truth, we must demand art not merely reflect cruelty and shine a light on it, but also that it bends the arc of time toward justice. Perhaps this is the impossible role of the artist. Your podcast has played a role in me formulating these thoughts. Pay no heed to anyone discouraging you. Your source is vital to me and others like me. Suffer no fools, Jay. Wow, there we go. A lot of ideas bursting out of our painter in Georgia. Jay, I'm so glad to hear from you. And I take all your suggestions and we'll see what we can do. I like hearing suggestions, people. Even though we only do about 50 shows in a year, in a good year, when you hear an episode, someone else has probably already asked for it. So I will do what I can. I will get to what I can. But boy, do I appreciate the email, Jay. I love exuberant emails, just like I love exuberant writers. And boy, do we have an exuberant writer coming up today. Edgar Allan Poe's Hop Frog after this. You can see me in the bedroom. Frog, or The Eight Chained Orang-Utangs, by Edgar Allan Poe. I never knew anyone so keenly alive to a joke as the king was. He seemed to live only for joking. To tell a good story of the joke kind, and to tell it well, was the surest road to his favor. 
Thus it happened that his seven ministers were all noted for their accomplishments as jokers. They all took after the king, too, in being large, corpulent, oily men, as well as inimitable jokers. Whether people grow fat by joking, or whether there is something in fat itself which predisposes to a joke, I have never been able quite to determine. But certain it is that a lean joker is a rara avis in terrace. About the refinements, or, as he called them, the ghost of wit, the king troubled himself very little. He had an especial admiration for breadth in a jest, and would often put up with length for the sake of it. Over-niceties wearied him. He would have preferred Rabelais' Gargantua to the Zadig of Voltaire, and upon the whole, practical jokes suited his taste far better than verbal ones. At the date of my narrative, professing jesters had not altogether gone out of fashion at court. Several of the great continental powers still retained their fools, who wore motley, with caps and bells, and who were expected to be always ready with sharp witticisms, at a moment's notice, in consideration of the crumbs that fell from the royal table. Our king, as a matter of course, retained his fool. The fact is, he required something in the way of folly, if only to counterbalance the heavy wisdom of the seven wise men who were his ministers not to mention himself. His fool, or professional jester, was not only a fool, however, his value was trebled in the eyes of the king by the fact of his being also a dwarf and a cripple. Dwarves were as common at court in those days as fools, and many monarchs would have found it difficult to get through their days. Days are rather longer at court than elsewhere, without both a jester to laugh with and a dwarf to laugh at. But, as I have already observed, your jesters, in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, are fat, round, and unwieldy, so that it was no small source of self-gratulation with our king that in Hopfrog, this was the fool's name, he possessed a triplicate treasure in one person. I believe the name Hopfrog was not that given to the dwarf by his sponsors at baptism, but it was conferred upon him by general consent of the several ministers on account of his inability to walk as other men do. In fact, Hopfrog could only get along by a sort of interjectional gait, something between a leap and a wriggle, a movement that afforded illimitable amusement, and of course, consolation to the king, for, notwithstanding the protuberance of his stomach and a constitutional swelling of the head, the king, by his whole court, was accounted a capital figure." But although Hopfrog, through the distortion of his legs, could move only with great pain and difficulty along a road or floor, the prodigious muscular power which nature seemed to have bestowed upon his arms, by way of compensation for deficiency in the lower limbs, enabled him to perform many feats of wonderful dexterity, where trees or ropes were in question, or anything else to climb. At such exercises he certainly much more resembled a squirrel or a small monkey than a frog. I am not able to say, with precision, from what country Hopfrog originally came. It was from some barbarous region, however, that no person ever heard of, a vast distance from the court of our king. Hopfrog, and a young girl very little less dwarfish than himself, although of exquisite proportions and a marvelous dancer, had been forcibly carried off from their respective homes in adjoining provinces, and sent as presents to the king, by one of his ever-victorious generals. 
Under these circumstances, it is not to be wondered at that a close intimacy arose between the two little captives. Indeed, they soon became sworn friends. Hopfrog, who, although he made a great deal of sport, was by no means popular, had it not in his power to render Trippetta many services, but she, on account of her grace and exquisite beauty, although a dwarf, was universally admired and petted, so she possessed much influence and never failed to use it whenever she could for the benefit of Hopfrog. On some grand state occasion, I forget what, the king determined to have a masquerade, and whenever a masquerade or anything of that kind occurred at our court, then the talents both of Hopfrog and Trippetta were sure to be called into play. Hopfrog, in especial, was so inventive in the way of getting up pageants, suggesting novel characters and arranging costumes for masked balls, that nothing could be done, it seems, without his assistance. The night appointed for the fate had arrived. A gorgeous hall had been fitted up under Trippetta's eye, with every kind of device which could possibly give eclat to a masquerade. The whole court was in a fever of expectation. As for costumes and characters, it might well be supposed that everybody had come to a decision on such points. Many had made up their minds as to what roles they should assume, a week or even a month in advance, and, in fact, there was not a particle of indecision anywhere, except in the case of the king and his seven ministers. Why they hesitated I never could tell, unless they did it by way of a joke. More probably, they found it difficult, on account of being so fat, to make up their minds. At all events, time flew, and as a last resort, they sent for Trippetta and Hopfrog. When the two little friends obeyed the summons of the king, they found him sitting at his wine with the seven members of his cabinet council. But the monarch appeared to be in a very ill humor. He knew that Hopfrog was not fond of wine for it excited the poor cripple almost to madness, and madness is no comfortable feeling. But the king loved his practical jokes, and took pleasure in forcing Hopfrog to drink, and, as the king called it, to be merry. Come here, Hopfrog, said he, as the jester and his friend entered the room. Swallow this bumper to the health of your absent friends. Here Hopfrog sighed. And then let us have the benefit of your invention. We want characters, man something novel, out of the way. We are wearied with this everlasting sameness. Come, drink. The wine will brighten your wits. Hopfrog endeavored, as usual, to get up a jest in reply to these advances from the king, but the effort was too much. It happened to be the poor dwarf's birthday, and the command to drink by his absent friends forced the tears to his eyes. Many large, bitter drops fell into the goblet as he took it humbly from the hand of the tyrant. "'Ah, ha, ha!' roared the latter as the dwarf reluctantly drained the beaker. "'See what a glass of good wine can do! Why, your eyes are shining already!' Poor fellow! His large eyes gleamed rather than shone, for the effect of wine on his excitable brain was not more powerful than instantaneous." He placed the goblet nervously on the table and looked round upon the company with a half-insane stare. They all seemed highly amused at the success of the king's joke. And now to business, said the prime minister, a very fat man. Yes, said the king, come lend us your assistance. 
characters, my fine fellow. We stand in need of characters, all of us. Ha, ha, ha. And as this was seriously meant for a joke, his laugh was chorused by the seven. Hopfrog also laughed, although feebly and somewhat vacantly. Come, come, said the king impatiently. Have you nothing to suggest? I am endeavoring to think of something novel, replied the dwarf abstractedly, for he was quite bewildered by the wine. Endeavoring, cried the tyrant fiercely. What do you mean by that? Ah, I perceive you are sulky and want more wine. Here, drink this. And he poured out another goblet full and offered it to the cripple, who merely gazed at it, gasping for breath. Drink, I say, shouted the monster, or by the fiends. The dwarf hesitated. The king grew purple with rage. The courtiers smirked. Trippetta, pale as a corpse, advanced to the monarch's seat and, falling on her knees before him, implored him to spare her friend. The tyrant regarded her for some moments in evident wonder at her audacity. He seemed quite at a loss what to do or say, how most becomingly to express his indignation. At last, without uttering a syllable, he pushed her violently from him and threw the contents of the brimming goblet in her face. The poor girl got up the best she could and, not daring even to sigh, resumed her position at the foot of the table. There was a dead silence for about half a minute, during which the falling of a leaf or of a feather might have been heard. It was interrupted by a low but harsh and protracted grating sound, which seemed to come at once from every corner of the room. What? What? What are you making that noise for? demanded the king, turning furiously to the dwarf. The latter seemed to have recovered in great measure from his intoxication, and looking fixedly but quietly into the tyrant's face, merely ejaculated, I? I? How could it have been me? The sound appeared to come from without, observed one of the courtiers. I fancy it was the parrot at the window, wetting his bill upon his cage wires. True, replied the monarch, as if much relieved by the suggestion, but on the honor of a knight I could have sworn that it was the gritting of this vagabond's teeth. Hereupon the dwarf laughed. The king was too confirmed a joker to object to anyone's laughing, and displayed a set of large, powerful, and very repulsive teeth. Moreover, he avowed his perfect willingness to swallow as much wine as desired. The monarch was pacified, and having drained another bumper with no very perceptible ill effect, Hopfrog entered at once, and with spirit, into the plans for the masquerade. "'I cannot tell what was the association of idea,' observed he, very tranquilly, and as if he had never tasted wine in his life." But just after your majesty had struck the girl and thrown the wine in her face, just after your majesty had done this, and while the parrot was making that odd noise outside the window, there came into my mind a capital diversion, one of my own country frolics, often enacted among us at our masquerades, but here it will be new altogether. Unfortunately, however, it requires a company of eight persons, and here we are! cried the king, laughing at his acute discovery of the coincidence. Eight to a fraction, I and my seven ministers. Come, what is the diversion? We call it, replied the cripple, the eight chained orangutans, and it really is excellent sport if well enacted. We will enact it, remarked the king, drawing himself up and lowering his eyelids. The beauty of the game, continued Hopfrog, 
lies in the fright it occasions among the women. Capital, roared in chorus the monarch and his ministry. I will equip you as orangutans, proceeded the dwarf. Leave all that to me. The resemblance shall be so striking that the company of masqueraders will take you for real beasts, and, of course, they will be as much terrified as astonished. Oh, this is exquisite, exclaimed the king. Hopfrog, I will make a man of you. The chains are for the purpose of increasing the confusion by their jangling. You are supposed to have escaped en masse from your keepers. Your majesty cannot conceive the effect produced at a masquerade by eight chained orangutans, imagined to be real ones by most of the company, and rushing in with savage cries among the crowd of delicately and gorgeously habited men and women. The contrast is inimitable. It must be said the king, and the council arose hurriedly, as it was growing late, to put in execution the scheme of Hopfrog. His mode of equipping the party as orangutans was very simple, but effective enough for his purposes. The animals in question had, at the epoch of my story, very rarely been seen in any part of the civilized world, and as the imitations made by the dwarf were sufficiently beast-like and more than sufficiently hideous, their truthfulness to nature was thus thought to be secured. The king and his ministers were first encased in tight-fitting stockinet shirts and drawers. They were then saturated with tar. At this stage of the process, some one of the party suggested feathers, but the suggestion was at once overruled by the dwarf, who soon convinced the eight by ocular demonstration that the hair of such a brute as the orangutan was much more efficiently represented by flax. A thick Coating of the latter was accordingly plastered upon the coating of tar. A long chain was now procured. First it was passed about the waist of the king and tied, then about another of the party and also tied, then about all successively in the same manner. When this chaining arrangement was complete and the party stood as far apart from each other as possible, they formed a circle, and to make all things appear natural, Hopfrog passed the residue of the chain in two diameters at right angles across the circle, after the fashion adopted at the present day by those who capture chimpanzees or other large apes in Borneo. The grand saloon in which the masquerade was to take place was a circular room, very lofty, and receiving the light of the sun only through a single window at top. At night, the season for which the apartment was especially designed, it was illuminated principally by a large chandelier, depending by a chain from the center of the skylight and lowered or elevated by means of a counterbalance as usual. But, in order not to look unsightly, this ladder passed outside the cupola and over the roof. The arrangements of the room had been left to Trepetta's superintendence, but in some particulars, it seems, she had been guided by the calmer judgment of her friend, the dwarf. At his suggestion it was that on this occasion the chandelier was removed. Its waxen drippings, which, in weather so warm, it was quite impossible to prevent, would have been seriously detrimental to the rich dresses of the guests, who, on account of the crowded state of the saloon, could not all be expected to keep from out its center. That is to say, from under the chandelier. Additional sconces were set in various parts of the hall out of the way, and a flambeau emitting sweet odor was placed in the right hand of each of the caryatids that stood against the wall, some fifty or sixty altogether. 
The eight orangutans, taking Hopfrog's advice, waited patiently until midnight when the room was thoroughly filled with masqueraders before making their appearance. No sooner had the clock ceased striking, however, than they rushed, or rather rolled in, all together, for the impediments of their chains caused most of the party to fall, and all to stumble as they entered. The excitement among the masqueraders was prodigious, and filled the heart of the king with glee. As had been anticipated, there were not a few of the guests who supposed the ferocious-looking creatures to be beasts of some kind in reality, if not precisely orangutans. Many of the women swooned with affright, and had not the king taken the precaution to exclude all weapons from the saloon, his party might soon have expiated their frolic in their blood. As it was, a general rush was made for the doors, but the king had ordered them to be locked immediately upon his entrance, and, at the dwarf's suggestion, the keys had been deposited with him. While the tumult was at its height, and each masquerader attentive only to his own safety, for in fact there was much real danger from the pressure of the excited crowd, the chain by which the chandelier ordinarily hung, and which had been drawn up on its removal, might have been seen very gradually to descend, until its hooked extremity came within three feet of the floor. Soon after this, the king and his seven friends, having reeled about the hall in all directions, found themselves at length in its center, and, of course, in immediate contact with the chain. While they were thus situated, the dwarf, who had followed noiselessly at their heels, inciting them to keep up the commotion, took hold of their own chain at the intersection of the two portions which crossed the circle diametrically and at right angles. Here, with the rapidity of thought, he inserted the hook from which the chandelier had been wont to depend, and in an instant, by some unseen agency, the chandelier chain was drawn so far upward as to take the hook out of reach, and, as an inevitable consequence, to drag the orangutans together in close connection and face to face. The masqueraders by this time had recovered in some measure from their alarm, and beginning to regard the whole matter as a well-contrived pleasantry, set up a loud shout of laughter at the predicament of the apes. "'Leave them to me!' now screamed Hopfrog, his shrill voice making itself easily heard through all the din. "'Leave them to me! I fancy I know them. If I can only get a good look at them, I can soon tell who they are.' Here, scrambling over the heads of the crowd, he managed to get to the wall, when, seizing a flambeau from one of the caryatids, he returned as he went to the center of the room, leaping, with the agility of a monkey, upon the king's head, and thence clambered a few feet up the chain, holding down the torch to examine the group of orangutans, and still screaming, I shall soon find out who they are! And now, while the whole assembly, the apes included, were convulsed with laughter, the jester suddenly uttered a shrill whistle when the chain flew violently up for about thirty feet, dragging with it the dismayed and struggling orangutans and leaving them suspended in midair between the skylight and the floor. Hopfrog, clinging to the chain as it rose, still maintained his relative position in respect to the eight maskers, and still, as if nothing were the matter, continued to thrust his torch down toward them, as though endeavoring to discover who they were. So thoroughly astonished was the whole company at this ascent that a dead silence of about a minute's duration ensued. It was broken by just such a low, 
harsh, grating sound, as had before attracted the attention of the king and his counselors when the former threw the wine in the face of Trepetta. But on the present occasion there could be no question as to whence the sound issued. It came from the fang-like teeth of the dwarf, who ground them and gnashed them as he foamed at the mouth and glared with an expression of maniacal rage into the upturned countenances of the king and his seven companions. Aha! said at length the infuriated jester. Aha! I begin to see who these people are now. Here, pretending to scrutinize the king more closely, he held the flambeau to the flaxen coat which enveloped him, and which instantly burst into a sheet of vivid flame. In less than half a minute, the whole eight orangutans were blazing fiercely, amid the shrieks of the multitude who gazed at them from below, horror-stricken, and without the power to render them the slightest assistance. At length the flames, suddenly increasing in virulence, forced the jester to climb higher up the chain to be out of their reach, and as he made this movement, the crowd again sank for a brief instant into silence. The dwarf seized his opportunity and once more spoke. I now see distinctly, he said, what manner of people these maskers are. They are a great king and his seven privy counselors, a king who does not scruple to strike a defenseless girl, and his seven counselors who abet him in the outrage. As for myself, I am simply Hopfrog, the jester, and this is my last jest. Owing to the high combustibility of both the flax and the tar to which it adhered, the dwarf had scarcely made an end of his brief speech before the work of vengeance was complete. The eight corpses swung up in their chains, a fetid, blackened, hideous, and indistinguishable mass. The cripple hurled his torch at them, clambered leisurely to the ceiling, and disappeared through the skylight. It is supposed that Trepetta, stationed on the roof of the salon, had been the accomplice of her friend in his fiery revenge, and that, together, they effected their escape to their own country, for neither was seen again. <laughs> Okay, there we go. My thanks to Mr. Poe for his story and to all of you for joining us and to our emailer today, Jay, the humble painter in Georgia. We will be back next week with our Monday-Thursday episode schedule. Hopefully, barring any mistakes, and we will steam ahead into October doing the best we can. We're part of LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate. That's www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson, J-A-C-K-E Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Podglomerate, a sonic universe.